Good morning, I'm Alicia McWatters. I'm gonna read the text for this morning. You can follow along on the screens um, in Hebrews chapter eight, one through 13. It says, now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But but as it is. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their hands and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thanks, Alicia. Good morning. Uh, I'm Claude. I'm me and my wife are the lead pastors here and continuing uh, in a series called For the Better. And this morning, the message is entitled uh, Better Promises, Better Promises. Uh, I am one of three kids. I have an older sister and a younger sister. And we tormented one another basically our entire lives, uh, if we're honest. Most of it was their fault. Um, I rarely did anything wrong. Uh, However, this morning, I'm going to share something that I'm not proud of. Uh, In fact, I'm perplexed as to why it is I'm even sharing it publicly. Uh, my wife's getting nervous. Of it. She's like, oh no. Um, so when I was headed off to, to college, my younger sister was just miserable about the whole idea. Uh, she hated that I was getting attention. She hated that uh, my parents were just kind of uh, going all in on making sure that I had all of the stuff that I needed when I was heading off to college. And so she was just, it was just a series of just a ton of misery, and she had guaranteed that the trip that was going to be about a five-hour trip to drop us off was going to be the worst trip of my life. And uh, I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you're such a jerk, and blah, blah, and you have to know her to appreciate it fully. Um, But in either case, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this. Tomorrow's my day. And so I concocted an idea that I can't believe I'm literally going to tell you. Do not do this, teenagers in the room. I, uh, I thought, you know what, she can't make my trip miserable um, if I drug her. So, 
<laughs> my own child is horrified by that. Uh, but it happened, honey. And so uh, I literally, uh, knowing my younger sister, if she took Benadryl, knocked out. And so I thought, how can I drug her? And of course, I was 17 years old, getting off to college. Like, look at everybody's like, oh, I've never done anything wrong. Yeah, right. You like beat the snot out of your brothers and sisters. You did terrible things. You probably never drugged them. Anyway, uh, so it's Benadryl. It's like, it's completely fine, usually, unless you're not really thinking about things. And you think probably the best way for her to take it without realizing it is for me to chop it up really finely and put it in hot tea, which actually has caffeine in it. And so, I don't know, I'm chopping it up like some type of drug dealer. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm crushing it. And, uh, and I'm thinking, how can I do this? And I'm like, am I doing this? Is this actually happening? And I thought, you know what? Yeah, because what's going to happen is she's going to get in the vehicle and she's just going to fall asleep. And then she'll sleep the whole way there. We'll wake up and be like, boom, you're welcome. Done. We all win, right? Anyway, so <laughs> I <laughs> I put it in these mugs and she's she was pretty like skeptical of the whole thing. I'm like, I'm making you hot tea. She's like, why? I was like, just because I love you and like this is our last morning together and and maybe forever. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm <laughs> making these teas and she's like, I'm not drinking anything you're making. I was like, what? Like what would I ever do? I love you. I am your brother. And she's like, I'm not drinking that. I was like, what? And she's like, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink only from this cup, and I'm going to watch it the whole time. I was like, wow, that's kind of impressive. She literally knew that I had the capacity to drug her. And so um, at some point, she went to the bathroom, and I, so I got same cups, same mugs, drugged one, not the other, and was like, here we go. We got this going. And I put it on the table and went to go get her. I came back out. And as I come out, she's like, I'm not, I'm not drinking it. I was like, why not? And so my mom is standing there with the mugs. And she goes, oh, here you go. Are these yours? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, here. And Jenny's like, hmm, go ahead and take one. And I was like, why? why? Like, it's not a big deal. And so I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, my mom's right-handed. Would she have grabbed this? Would she grab like that? I'm thinking, how did she pick it up off the table? And uh, so I'm like, yeah, I'll just take it and we'll drink it. So I take one. She takes one, and uh, we're, we're sitting there, and I'm like, if you're nervous about it, we can switch. And she's like, no, I'm fine. Are you fine? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> and she's like, well, then go ahead and drink it. I was like, I'm going to drink it. I'm totally going to drink this. Why wouldn't I drink it? Like, it's just tea. She's like, all right. And so I start to, like, drink it, and she starts to, and we're, like, put it up to our lips. And, you know, kind of one of those nervous things. She's like, did you drink any? I was like, yeah, it's tasty. And so I drink it, it tastes fine, and I think, you know what, if I just drink a little bit, then it probably won't affect me if I have the wrong one. And so I take a couple sips, and she says, this tastes kind of funny. I'm like, she got the right one. So then I just start chuggling it, and you, chuggling it? Is that a word? It's not a word, but it should be. It's like chuggle, chug, and laugh. I don't know. Um, but in either case, I start chugging it, and, uh, and so I was like, drink up, drink up. So she starts drinking it, and uh, it, was, it was a weird trip. It was a weird trip. Um, and also, it was a weird traveling experience. Uh, <laughs> no, so she, <laughs> some of you will get that later. But uh, 
as we were going down, she's like, I just feel weird. I was like, really? Aren't you tired? She's like, no, I feel like, like wired. Like I could just like, like just pick stuff up and like run around and like talk really fast. Like I'm thinking so clearly. I'm like, oh no, what am I? <laughs> like I really like messed her up. And so she got like kind of hyper and stuff. And then she did end up passing out. And then I came clean because she felt weird and nauseous. And so I thought in case I had really done something wrong, turns out she was fine. It's all fine. Everything's fine. It's totally normal. Don't do it yourself. I, the reason why I share that story is because I want to ask the question, why do we sometimes question change? And what I mean by change is anytime something is different. I think there's something in us that kind of cues us off, like something's wrong here. Why is Claude getting me tea first thing in the morning? Uh, Why do we question the fact that the the cups could be switched or what's going on? What what is it that really drives us to question anything that has changed, anything that's out of the ordinary? I want to submit to you that we sometimes question change when we're not convinced it's for the better. When we're not convinced it's for the better. Like it or not, Christian or not, and I realize we have all different types of people in the room from the, the skeptic to all the way up to the committed Christ follower and everyone in between. And so regardless where you fall in your faith journey, as humans, we find a sense of peace and even comfort in the known and the proven, in the consistent. Like when it's what it is that we thought it was going to be, it's kind of like, okay. And we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, but I realize that there are some personalities in the room that are literally change averse. Like you just don't ever want to change anything. And there are others in the room that are like, listen, I like change just because it's change. Like let's just swap it up. Let's just move everything around. Let's just change things. Regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, here's what we all have in common. Once we are truly convinced something is for the better, we're willing to change. Wherever you might be on that spectrum, whether you just love change or you're opposed and fearful of change, if you're convinced that the change is for the better, you're game. Convinced. You have to be convinced. You know what I find is uh, interesting about this concept of being convinced is that we've all had interactions with a child at some point, whether or not it's your child, someone else's child, or a sibling whether you're a young adult in the room or a teenager. We've had interactions with children that requires them to change their behavior. It requires them to listen. And in those moments, they want to know why. Stop doing that. Why? Because I don't want you to die? Like, yeah, but why? They want to know why. They want to be convinced. But we expect obedience. Isn't that interesting? We expect obedience. Why do we expect obedience? Because we're on a power trip? Well, maybe, (laughs) but that's aside the point. More often than not, we expect to be obeyed because we know better. We know better. So, So don't ask why. Listen, we expect obedience as adults or young adults because we have a better perspective. Even, listen, even if we took the time to explain why someone shouldn't eat chocolate in bed, you know, 
Why can't I eat chocolate in bed? Oh my goodness, are you serious? I have to explain this? And, uh, you know, maybe I'm the only kid that ever tried to eat chocolate in bed. Like, you guys are looking at me like, never. I used to eat chocolate in bed or try to, and I would always say why, and Meredith just wouldn't tell me. <laughs> but enough about last week. Anyway, no, the reality is when there's things that, that children or people that don't understand, they don't have a capacity of understanding, and they're asking the question, why? Why is it that I can't do this? Even if we took the time to explain it. Even if we said, okay, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why. The reality is because of their limited life experience and their limited understanding, they still may not be convinced, right? At the end of the day, how do you explain an entire world to to someone that's just saying, but I want it my way, but I just want this. Why can't I have it? Well, because it's bigger than what you want. Yeah, but I just want this. Well, listen, then just obey me. Just trust that I have something better for you, that I'm looking out for you. It's funny how that kind of works, the way we get frustrated with the expectation to explain. And yet, we look to the sky when things aren't going our way, and we ask why. We scream, why not? In fact, if we're honest, what we want is God to convince us. We want to know that our way is not actually better because at the, at the, in the reality of it, we think our way is better. And so God, just convince me. Convince me this makes sense because I think that my perspective is best. And so I'm not sure I can trust you right now. We have a limited perspective. Man, it's so interesting the things we never grow out of, right? We get so angry at our kids. Just do it. Put the knife down, <laughs> stop drugging your sister. (laughs) Why? Why? In fact, you know, we never grow out of a lot of things. The author of Hebrews is attempting to convince the readers of Hebrews, of this letter, of better promises. So chapters 1 through 7 are actually kind of culminating into this summary in the beginning of chapter 8. And it starts off with verse 1. It says, now the point And what we are saying is this, like, here we go. Here's the summary of everything that we've been talking about in chapters one through seven. Here it is. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand, the throne of the majesty in heaven. Here's what we're trying to say. Everything that we're trying to say is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And now understanding the context and in that time, and it still holds true, although we don't have a lot of monarchies in our day, but if you were a king, to the right, that person was the person with the most authority in the entire kingdom. And so what what the author is saying is, listen, we have Jesus Christ sitting right next to God Almighty. We have full authority. You skip ahead to to verse 3, and it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. We've talked a little bit about what it is to to be a priest and be a high priest in those days, what it looked like to, to bring sacrifices to a tabernacle for the purpose of atoning for sin. It goes on, it says, Thus is necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, 
this priest also to have something to offer. High priests would never go empty-handed. But what is Jesus offering? What is it that he has to offer? If you skip down to verse 5, it says, they serve a copy and a shadow. We're talking about the priests here, the, the earthly priests. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, you know, we're making reference to some Old Testament things, and we'll connect some dots in a minute. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, to the top of Mount Sinai, and has an encounter with the Lord, and ultimately, God writes the law on tablets. And he sees uh, instruction on how to build a tabernacle where God will come and his presence will be with the people. And so that's what this is making reference to. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you, where? On the mountain. On the mountain. So they, meaning earthly priests, serve a copy and shadow. This seems fairly simple at face value, but something rather profound is kind of happening and, and kind of communicated here. And so we have to consider the context in order to get the full grasp of what's taking place. This idea of shadow. Shadow. This Greek word was used in Greek culture at the, the time of the original readers. And so it was a term used predominantly in philosophy by Plato, in fact. Maybe you have heard of him. Uh, if not, you had a poor high school education. So realize these Hebrews are Jewish Christians immersed in Greek culture, which was, heavenly in, which was heavily influenced by Plato, specifically for this morning's context, Plato's parable of the cave. And of course, we all know what that is. I'm just kidding. I had to look it up too. <laughs> it's like parable of the cave. What? Like, I don't even know who Plato is. Did he just make fun of me? I don't know. A famous Greek philosopher wrote a parable of the cave, and Plato argued that our knowledge is like that of a man who is kept in a fire-lit cave and only sees the shadow of real objects when he looks at the cave's walls. It's an interesting concept. Plato's premise was that we only know things as shadows of the original. You see, the real object casts the shadow in the firelight. And so the author of Hebrews is submitting that the old covenant was a shadow of the new covenant. What what they're saying rather eloquently in in the, the language of the current philosophers of the day is saying, listen, the high priest, the earthly high priest, pretty legit, but a shadow of the real thing, the real high priest. In fact, the tabernacle that you go to encounter the living God, just a shadow of the heavenly one. The old covenant, just a shadow of the new covenant. A rather profound concept that the the earthly tabernacle is a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. And so you might say, wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so what? Like, why does that matter to us? Listen, don't settle for shadows. Think about that for a second. Are you settling 
for a shadow. True joy isn't found on the earth. Joy that we know is a mere shadow of true joy. It's what our soul is longing for. You see, if you're chasing peace this morning, if you're chasing love, you're chasing shadows. Because if you're looking on this plane for a sense of love and a sense of peace, you'll never actually get it. Because that's not the real deal. It's merely a shadow of the real. When we search for something that only God can provide, we're chasing shadows. You want to know how to figure out if you're chasing shadows? It's actually pretty easy. Have you ever watched a a kid chase their shadow? I think every kid does it at some point where they're looking down. They're like, oh my gosh, that thing's following me. (laughs) Like, I wonder if I can get it. And And I had a friend who would just laugh hysterically at his kid chasing their shadow because he would go into like kind of this slow thing where he'd be inching along, inching along, and then he'd start jogging and then he'd start running and he'd run and run and run and run into something because he'd be looking at his shadow. And so instead of trying, although he tried several times to explain to his son, listen, that's not real. It's a shadow of you. He's like, but it follows me everywhere I go. And he's like, I just gave up. He's like, now I just watch. I was like, are you kidding? He's like, oh, yeah, just wait. And so sure enough, all of a sudden he's like, starts running, and he's like, oh, yeah, he'll, he'll go until, there it is, boom, he just runs. He's like, I don't know, until he learns his lesson that he's chasing something that isn't real, we just watch. Hmm. It's hilarious and tragic. Because kids that chase their shadows, they get tired. Sometimes they get hurt but they never actually get what they're chasing after. Are you tired? Are you never getting what you really, really are chasing? That sense of approval, that sense of meaning? Hey, if I get enough, then people will start to respect me. If if she would love me, then I would finally just realize my purpose in life. If only I weren't alone, if I had that job, oh man, if I had that car, if I had this education, listen, if I could do that for a living, if I had that promote, I mean, we could be here all day, right? Because it's the narratives that we all run through in our hearts and mind. Why? Because at the end of the day, if we're honest, we are humans chasing shadows. We're just, we're just chasing shadows. We're so tired. We're so tired so often. And so some of us, we run harder because we're convinced, man, listen, all those fools, they'll never catch their shadows because they're not running as hard as I am. We never get it. There's something better. There's something better. In fact, verse 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. On better promises. The old covenant, if you want to understand the verse, the old covenant promised restraint 
from the wrath of God against humankind's sin. So the way the old covenant worked is, here's these rules in order to achieve righteousness because God cannot coexist with sin. It literally, sin, when it entered the earth, it severed the relationship between humankind and God. And so God says, listen, if you can behave according to these laws and eradicate sin from your life, then we can be in relationship. And of course, humanity could never behave well enough. And so what happens with the sin in our lives, God creates a law where when the, when the laws are broken, sacrifices are made by blameless animals. Blood shed takes place, not to atone for sin, but to restrain the wrath of God against sin. And so it was never ending. It was continual. Over 660 laws that they had to to try to remember and to try to obey to the point where a whole group of people are pointing them out at every turn and just, I'm never measuring up. You feel like you never measure up now? Imagine just some straight stranger walking up and be like, nope, that's not allowed. You broke law number 287. Never going to win. One year, uh, one day at the end of the year, the high priest goes in and makes a sacrifice for accidental sin. It's just a never-ending circle. Never-ending, chasing and chasing. So it could never forgive or atone for the sin because we could never actually follow the law to the letter until until Jesus came. Fully God and fully man. That fully fulfills the law, obeys every law, is completely blameless and completely without sin. And he lays down his life for you and for me. For a series of new promises and a new covenant. And in his last breath, he says something in John 19.30. He's literally hanging on a cross and he's about to lay down his life. And with his final breaths, one of the things he speaks out is, it is finished. It's interesting. Some people think that he says it's finished because he's completed his mission, but that's not the case. If you know the mission of Christ, it, it continues, right? He has victory over death. He has victory over the grave. He still sends the comforter. His mission is not over. That's not the climax of the mission he sent. So why does Jesus, in full knowledge of the mission that lies ahead of him, declare it is finished? He declares it's finished because the atonement of sin was finished in that moment. You see, Jesus' offering was himself. The great high priest lays down his life. And says, finally, you don't have to strive to try to behave. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to chase the shadows to try to earn some sense of belonging and love and peace and joy. I will be the perfect sacrifice. It's finished. His work for the atonement is done. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father mediating on our behalf. The word of God says, interceding on our behalf. The son of the living God says, listen, I'll cover that sin. That when we cry out in our brokenness, 
He says, let's send the Holy Spirit to bring comfort to them in their moment of pain. That literally as we're screaming out why, like little children throwing a temper tantrum, thinking, I thought my life was going to work out differently than this. Why, 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 why? That Jesus himself is saying, will you you just stop chasing your own shadow and realize that the, the real thing is here, that you can have love everlasting, that you can have peace that passes all understanding, that you can have joy that overflows. Don't settle for some ripped off version of what it means to live your one and only life, but walk in the fullness that I make available for you. You see, the better promise is that we can know the Lord, that our sin has been dealt with completely. It means we don't have to settle and chase shadows. And get this, the author clarifies that the Hebrew Christians should already know this. (laughs) I I, I love the brilliance of the, the author of Hebrews that obviously has some real depth theologically, but the way it's it's geared towards the, the final moment of, I'm going to prove to you that you should have already been convinced. And the way the author does that is that they quote Jeremiah, the prophet, 31, 31 through 34. And is basically saying, what I'm telling you and what I've been telling you for the last seven chapters is what you've always known. You just weren't convinced. Verse 8 says, for he finds fault with them when he says, and here's the quotation of Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. In other words, they never could measure up. They didn't behave well enough. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws, not on the tablets, into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest. It was impossible. You couldn't know the Lord. Only the high priest was allowed on that one day a year to go into the Holy of Holies. And God's presence would come down on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That was it. What Jeremiah was prophesying about was insane in the Old Testament. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, the people, the fathers of old have been telling you about the new covenant and the reality that you can know God personally from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's incredible. It's incredible to them when they're, when they're steeped in, this, in the culture of understanding so well the old covenant. It's like, oh my gosh. The, the prophet Jeremiah was talking about, about Jesus, about the new covenant, about a better covenant. I feel like the author's just saying, convinced yet? Our greatest problem 
is sin. It severs us from God's presence and distances us from him. And the sooner we realize that that's our choice and not his, the better we'll start to understand the relationship that can exist. God doesn't move from us. We move from him. The choices that we make, if you feel distant from the Lord, it's because of choices you have made, but he remains waiting for you. All too often, we think of our relationship with God. If you're in the room and profess a relationship with God, I'm speaking to you. If you have a relationship with the Lord, all too often we equate it with a relationship that we have with a spouse or a child or a brother or a sister or whatever. And we think, you know what? When we offend that relationship, there's distance on both sides. And so we feel like there's a, a reconciling that needs to take place and that there's anger from the other side that somehow needs to, to be mediated, right? But the new covenant says... God sees you as a child because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so it's us who move away from him, but he's not, he's not angry with us. He's waiting to forgive us if we would just return to him. If we would just decide to stop chasing the shadows and realize that true love and true peace and true joy is found only in him. If we would just draw near. You see, the promises, the better promises, belong to God's people because of a better covenant. Honestly, we're a lot like the Hebrews. We're just too busy chasing shadows sometimes, chasing the known, the proven. And when this happened, I felt better about myself. So maybe I need to experience that again. And then when we do, it's not quite the way it's cracked up to be. And we continue on the cycle. It's because we just aren't convinced that the shadow isn't the real thing. It's the only explanation, right? Like a child running after its own shadow, it just... It's just not convinced that that shadow isn't real. No matter how hard we try to explain why. But it's right where we're at. Chasing. I want to challenge you to take moments in your life where you just stop the chase and evaluate. What am I running after? Is it real? Or is it fading? Will it rust, be eaten by moths, rot away? Or is it eternal, stored up in heaven? So what am I doing with my, my one and only life? We say every week here that the text requires something of us. Whether it's our first time or our one millionth time, whether we know the Lord or, or we don't. Text requires something from us this morning. And so I want to challenge you with an application as you leave this place to consider. And we actually want to create even margin for you in the room this morning. The question is this. When will I spend time silent in God's presence? When will I spend time silent in God's presence? Because here's the deal. 
my kids trust me because they spend time with me and they know that I love them. Even when it's hard, you can ask them if I've asked them this question, do you trust me? Because I do. There's just some times where it's like, I can't explain why, and you might not even understand the why, but do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you. And do it. Okay. Have you spent enough time with the Lord to trust him? Stop chasing after everything because our world, man, it's, it's fast-paced. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's fast-paced and getting faster. And there's so much of us that kind of enjoys it, and then there's so much of us that kind of despises it. And so we want to create margin. We want to create margin for some of you even this morning to just have some space to say, you know what, I'm not confident that I can find time in my life to be silent in God's presence. And so we want to create a moment for you to be silent in God's presence. This is what I'd like us to do is just, if you would, bow your head for a moment and you can keep your eyes open if you're easily distracted. I'm easily distracted. If I shut my eyes, I'll be like, oh, tree, dog, plant, whatever. So if you need to keep your eyes open, go ahead and keep them open. But just kind of look at the ground so you're not distracted as the, the team makes their way up. I want you to consider what the text might require from you in the sense that for some of you this morning, the idea of spending time silent in God's presence is a foreign concept because You've never surrendered your life to God. So for you this morning, maybe spending time silent before God begins with a willingness to surrender your life to him. To acknowledge that he paid the price that you could never pay. He did what you could never do. And so I'm not going to make you raise your hand or come forward or embarrass you or anything like that. In the quietness of your mind right now, if that's you, it's as simple as a prayer. To just say, Lord, would you forgive me the sin of my life? Would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? It starts there. There's additional steps, and we'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to get to know God better, to continue in that relationship. But for some of you this morning, that's your application. It starts there. For others of us, it looks like needing to stop chasing the shadows. If you're really honest with yourself right now, there's a lot of things you're chasing after. And as you chase after them, it's like, when are you going to come to grips with the fact that it's just a shadow? The good news is there's, there's a real version of it, and it's found only in God. So when will you say, Lord, I, I don't need the approval of others because I accept your approval of me. I'm good enough because you say I'm good enough. I don't have to compromise who I am to try to earn the love of others or chase after things that just, it's like sand through our fingers. Just continue to scoop it up and it's gone as quickly as we grasp for it. For some of us, the the silence has to look like saying, okay, God, I run after that. And for some of you, maybe it's sin. I run after that sin because I'm running after a ripped-off version of what's only provided in you. 
I want joy. I want peace. For others of you this morning, maybe you're there and you're like, listen, I've given my life to the Lord and and I continually evaluate the things that I chase after. You might be tempted to say the word's not for you or that you're glad someone else was here. (laughs) The reality is the text requires something from every single one of us. And so for you this morning, maybe it looks like when are you going to help others realize that they're chasing shadows? When are you going to decide to live on mission? To realize that Jesus didn't lay down his one and only life simply for you and you alone. He laid down his life for the world. For the sphere of influence that you walk into every day, every week, every month. You're a gospel-centered influencer in every sphere of life. So maybe it's time to spend some silence in God's presence and say, Lord, what does that look like? What does it look like for me to live on mission?